Welcome to my church. My name is Christy, and I am not one of the pastors here. If you come here regularly, you know usually I have to live with the pastor, and that is enough for me. Um, usually my husband Jeff starts the service by saying, Hi, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, which is true. Is also, I know, a little confusing. I had some friends that visited on Easter, and they said, we loved your service. We love that funny guy with all the tickets that almost fell off the stage, but who's your real pastor? And I was like, well, he's kind of it. And they said, no, 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 like, who's his boss? I said, well, technically, God is his boss, but, you know, there's a board of people that oversee and yada, 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 and they're like, we knew it. It's a church. There have to be boring people in charge. <laughs> so we say that every week because this is the heart. We believe it's really, really important not to build you to a man or to a personality. We believe it's important just to point you towards God. And so another thing we do is from time to time, he will rotate teachers so that you can hear from different people and hear different perspectives. And I think I have figured out that when he asked me to take on a certain subject, it's because I need help with that subject. So I want you to know today that I'm going to be talking to you not out of my strength, but out of my weakness. We are in week three of a series, Too Good to Be True, all about grace. Grace is one of those things that the Bible tells us is true, but it just sounds too good to be true. It's this idea that good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people go to heaven. So whatever you've done, wherever you've come from, wherever you've been, all you have to do is be forgiven. Jeff said in week one that grace isn't earned. There's nothing you do to earn it. It is offered freely. In week two, he said all you have to do to get that grace is to believe. And it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can stand before God just as if you've never, ever sinned before, just by believing. Almost 200 people believed that on Easter. Several of them were baptized here last week in the middle of the tornado. And um, this week, I want to talk to those of you who have sat here for two weeks and kind of had some questions mulling. You've heard, okay, grace isn't earned, it's offered. All I have to do is believe. But what if... Belief is hard for you. What if you still have some questions? I want to believe that I can be forgiven and go to heaven, but you don't know my story. Or does that mean if I believe that, I have to believe God created the earth in six days? Or do I have to believe about that guy who lived in the belly of the whale? I mean, this is a lot you're asking me in one word, belief. Some of us, I call you big faith people. You're like Jeff. If God says jump off a cliff, he doesn't have to ask twice. Some of you are wired a little more like me. I like to call us smart. <laughs> if God says jump off a cliff, we want to know the pros and the cons. We want to know who's done it before, right? We want to know what's down there. And we need a sign. Anybody need a sign before they do something? And then I, I need a sign that I was right about the sign. And then I need a sign about the sign about the sign before I'm going to jump off the cliff with you big faith people. You call us doubters. I just call us smart thinkers, cautious, okay? So I'm there with you. If you've wanted to just readily believe, but you have some questions, the goal of today's service is not to convince you to believe. I cannot do that. Only God can do that, and I certainly can't do it in 30 minutes. The goal of today's message is to convince you that this is a safe place to come if you have questions. And at the end of the today, we're going to invite you to take one step closer to God. See, I don't know how you grew up. I grew up in churches that when you had questions, you were kind of hushed. Don't say those questions out loud. 
You know, there were certain things that we were told to believe, and when I said, where is that? And nobody could show you where that was in the Bible, and I needed those questions a- answered. That's how I was wired. It was kind of like, just don't ask those out loud. Go ask those at home to your parents. So I don't know if you've ever felt shamed because you have questions. I don't know if you've ever had a twinge of, of arrogance. I've been guilty of that as well. Like, I know too much, and you are not tricking me, and if A plus B does not equal C, then I am not going to believe it. I remember one time my parents switched denominations of churches. We went to this new church where we had to recite all this stuff, and I'd stand up with my arms crossed, and I would not say a word because I didn't know what they were saying, and I wasn't sure if I believed it, and you could not make me do it, all right? So all of you who are thinkers (laughs) instead of feelers, and belief does not come easy for you. Today is for you. This is why we had to postpone the message because none of you came last week. You heard about the warning and you stayed home. You were cautious. All right? Will you pray with me and then we will get started. All right? Heavenly Father, we come before you. And God, in all seriousness, we know that this is something, God, our doubts, our questions are something that have the ability to lead us closer to you or to, or to drag us further away from you. And so, God, I pray in the next 30 minutes that you would fill this room and fill our hearts and help us to understand for sure that you made us and that it is safe for us to come and to ask our questions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you, when you were a kid, you heard these five syllables? Because I said so. You ever hear that from your parents? Why do I have to clean my room? Because I said so. Why can't I go with so-and-so? Because I said so. Now, how many of you are a parent, and you'll admit you've said those five syllables to your kids? Those of us who are parents, we all know it is when you are tired, out of your parent genius, you've run out of patience that we say that, right? Or sometimes we just don't know what we're doing, and we say, because I said so, because we want to end the conversation right there with no more talking back. I want you to know this morning, I want to lay a foundation for you that God is not an exasperated parent. He is not tired. He, is, he does not run out of his God-parent genius. And so he will never say to you, because I said so. All right? The conversation doesn't have to be over with him. He is patient, and it can be a process. Lamentation says it this way, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. You know, the sooner we understand that our relationship with God is more about his faithfulness than our faithfulness, the easier it's going to be for you. See, the Bible tells us that even when we're faithless, even when we're full of doubts and questions, he is still faithful. He can't be anything else but faithful, and it's never ending. His mercies, it says, are new every morning. So God is not this tired, worn-out parent or that boss that you can't approach and ask questions because God is perfect. Anybody had a boss before and there was no questioning the boss? It was his way or the highway. And usually when somebody doesn't allow you to ask any questions or raise any doubts, it's because there's, there's other issues, right? Some insecurity, some power play, some I don't really know what I'm doing and I don't want you to figure it out. That's not how it is with God. He is all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. In fact, think of it from a different angle. God already knows what your doubts are going to be before you know what they're going to be. The Bible tells us that before he 
formed you, he knew you. Jeremiah 1.5. He knew every doubt, every question you were ever going to have before you ever had it. And I think that we might see from the stories we look at today that maybe, just maybe, God even wired you that way to ask those questions, wired you that way to have those feelings of doubt so that maybe, just maybe, it would give him an opportunity to show up in your life and you to know for certain either that he's real or that he loves you or that he has a plan for you. We're going to look at the people who are closest to Jesus They were all very different people, and we're going to follow their journey of doubts and questions. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to John chapter 20. If you have a smartphone, you can find it on your smartphone, and we will put it on the screens for you as well. This is the story of Jesus' disciples after he has died on the cross and he has been buried, and they are scared, and they're doubting. Now, while Jesus was alive, he had said to them five different times, he pulled them all together and said, listen, I'm going to have to die, but I'm going to rise again. Five different times. So you would think that they would be expecting that to happen. Just like I would think when I tell some of my children to do the dishes five different times, I send a text, I have a phone call, another text that when I come home, the dishes would be done, right? No, nobody takes me serious in my house. Somehow his disciples missed it or they were afraid or they had questions. And in this chapter, chapter 20 of John, they are scared and they're hiding together in a room because they don't know if they're next. And it says in verse one that early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple the guy writing this book, his name is John. She finds them and she says, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and I don't know where they have put them. First entry of doubt. They've been following Jesus physically. They could see him and touch him. All of a sudden he's gone and Mary's saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on. Even though Jesus had told him five times he was going to have to die, have to be buried, and and would rise again, there's still doubt in their minds. Well, all of them react different. Peter and the other disciple run to the tomb to see for themselves. Two of the guys, they got to see for themselves. It says the other disciple, that's John, the guy writing this, outran Peter. He was the youngest, so he probably ran faster. He got there first. He stooped in and looked in, and he sees the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Now, I don't know why you don't go in rooms, but I usually don't go in rooms for two reasons. One, I'm afraid, or two, I'm afraid that I'm about to be ambushed by little people that are going to scare me, all right? I don't know, but John was the youngest. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he thought it was a trap, but whatever, in his personality, when he gets there, he stops, not Peter, Peter's an entirely different personality. Peter can't run as fast, but when Peter gets there, he runs right in past John. And it says in verse 6 that Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying to the side. He sees that. Then the other disciple, verse 8 says, also went in, and he saw that same cloth 
and he believed. Now, so far we have three people. We have Mary, we have Peter, and we have John. We have Peter who runs in and sees this cloth. And the the significance of this cloth is this. The head covering that would have been over Jesus's buried body was also called a napkin. And they see that this napkin is just strangely, like if he rose from the dead, you'd think the clothes just fell. But somehow the face wrap, the face napkin was folded neatly and laid to the side. Now, to us, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but to these guys who had doubts and questions that had grown up in Hebrew families with Hebrew fathers, they would have known that there was a a dinner tradition among Hebrew men. The father was the head of the house. Nobody left the table until the father left the table. And so there was kind of this symbol, if dad was done eating and he was planning to come back, I'm sorry, if he was not done eating, let's say he had to go to the bathroom, all right, in the middle of dinner. Dad's got to go to the bathroom. He doesn't want to say that publicly. So he would get up, and what he'd do with his napkin is he'd throw his napkin down in a big heap. That meant dinner's over. Everybody can leave. You don't have to come back to the table. But if Dad folded his napkin neatly and laid it to the side like they see in the tomb, That meant dad's coming back and you better not leave. So to us, I realize that doesn't mean a whole lot. Why are we talking about this? To John and Peter, to John especially, he saw that. Now he's the disciple that Jesus loved. He's the one who sat right next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He would have been paying attention to what Jesus did with that napkin. Jesus throws it down. That means dinner's over. Jesus folds it. That means game is not over. He is coming back. John sees that napkin neatly folded and placed to the side, and John knows light goes off. All of his doubts, all of his questions are answered just by that napkin. It says he saw it and he believed. Now, for Peter, that was not enough because Peter had bigger issues, Peter had some shame issues and some forgiveness issues. And the last time he had seen Jesus, he had been denying Jesus. And so it was going to take more for Peter to believe. And we don't have time to go there today, but in John chapter 21, I'm telling you, if you were not here for Richard Moore's talk on John chapter 21 a couple weeks ago, you have got to go back to the podcast and hear that. It is life changing. What Jesus did specifically for Peter to come back to him and to answer his questions and to make sure he knew that he was forgiven, Peter needed, needed something else. John needed the napkin. Peter needed an encounter where he was forgiven. And then Mary, poor Mary, the whole time, she's standing outside the tomb. She hasn't gone in yet, and she is doing what we girls do best. She is crying, <laughs> crying her eyes out. Now, what you need to know about Mary is Mary is a woman that we are told in Scripture she was possessed by seven demons. Before you think this is a scary girl spend the night, I don't know if you've had girls spend the night at your house, but most of mine end with somebody tells a scary demon story and I have to call all the moms and they have to come home, all right? We're not going to get into all the details of that, but let's just suffice it to say, think of your very worst nightmare ever. And poor Mary, she lived that day and night constantly 
constantly tormented by evil and darkness and death and seven things that took over her identity. She has no identity for years until she meets Jesus and he sets her free and he calls her by her name. And all of a sudden she is free and she has an identity. But when Jesus is gone, put yourself in Mary's shoes. What are you feeling? You're feeling very alone. Can you imagine being at a tomb if you had had experiences like her in the past with evil and with darkness? She probably doesn't even want to go in there or step inside, much less alone. And so notice what God does for her. She peeks inside the tomb, and it says that when Mary looks inside, verse 12, she sees two white-robed angels sitting at the head and foot of where Jesus' body was. And I just have to think that God, knowing her, knowing what she'd been through, knowing how she was wired, he put angels and light in there. So the very thing that would have freaked her out, she was a little less afraid having someone else there. And then at the very same time, Jesus appears behind her. It says in verse 14 that she glances over her shoulder and she sees someone standing behind her and it was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. And he says, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she thinks he's the gardener. She's crying so hard she can't see straight. She says, if you've taken him away, tell me where you put him and I'll go get him. And then Jesus, he only needs to say one word to answer all of her questions, to answer all of her doubts. All he has to do is say her name. He says, Mary, calls this woman who'd had no identity for years, calls her by name. And in that moment, her doubts, her questions are answered. And she runs back to the disciples who are still hiding in a room. And it says in verse 19 that that evening on the first day of the week, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors and they were afraid because of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he says. And as he spoke, he held out his hands and showed them his side for them to see. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Now, quick recap. We have John, who needed to see the napkin folded up. We have Mary, who needed to hear her name called by Jesus. We have Peter, who was a lot more complicated, who needed this big, the whole chapter dedicated to him in chapter 21. And then we have these disciples in the room that when they see Jesus, that was enough for them to believe that he was alive, that he was real. But there was one guy who was missing, and poor guy gets a terrible rap. He is known as Doubting Thomas all throughout Christianity. But I just have to think that God, knowing everything, he knew Thomas wasn't there that day. It was not an accident that he appeared to the other guys and left Thomas out. He knew what he was doing. Thomas wasn't there, and Thomas tells the other disciples, I won't believe until I see and touch. Seeing's not enough for me. Thomas was a thinker. Thomas was cautious, probably wired like some of us. He had questions, and he just wasn't going to believe without seeing and touching and having proof. And here's what Jesus does for him. In verse 26, it says, eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them, and he says, peace be with you. 
And then he says directly to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand in my side. Don't be faithless anymore. Believe. See, I don't think it was an accident because for the rest of Thomas's life, I guarantee you, it was easier for him to believe because of that experience. And I, I wonder, I watch how Jesus reacted so patiently, so different. I mean, he could have come in and he could have just chewed Thomas out. Thomas, how did you not believe? Everybody else believed. How come you had to see and touch? He could have just, you know, ripped him up. Or he could have never taken the time to come back. But instead, Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, don't just see, but come closer. Come closer. See, I wonder if sometimes the God who made you, the God who gives you the gift of faith, he can give you a lot or he can give you a little. He knows exactly how you're wired. He knows exactly what you're going to need to believe. What if, what if, in his foreknowledge, he planned your very doubts and questions so that you would have a reason to come closer, so that he could prove to you that he was real, so that he could prove to you that he was good and that he was... Le- what if that was all your doubts and your... Que- the very things that almost make you turn the other way and run away from God, what if those very things might be the thing that he uses to bring you back to himself. Think about all those people. All of them wired differently. All of them had a different experience where God answered their questions and answered their doubts. Jeremiah 29 11 says it this way, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. People read you that verse when everything's bad in your life. You ever had anybody read you that verse like right after a hard time and you're like, I don't want to hear it, right? Because of verse 12, it says, then you will call on me and you will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. What if your questions and your doubts were not something that made God angry, not something that had to separate you from belief. What if they were the very thing that could strengthen your belief? And what if God planned you to go through those things or through difficult times so that you would have to pray and search for him? Let me explain it this way. Um, Several years ago, 2007, I'll never forget that year, was the year that Every foundation we ever had in our life, every spiritual foundation kind of crumbled. In my family, I was raised to believe in God, and I can't say I ever doubted that he was real, but I certainly doubted that he was good and that he was loving. It all started with my sister's family. They were going home from church, and on their way home, they were hit by a drunk driver going 70 miles an hour, never saw him coming. Their daughter, who was homecoming queen, captain of the cheerleader, soccer star, beautiful 15-year-old, she was um, in a coma, 
severe brain injury. The doctor said, if she walks and talks again, she will never be the same. Well, if that's not enough, my sister and her husband, they're both crushed in full body casts, both of them. Jeff and I wheeled them in the first time to see their daughter in a coma, and they couldn't even get near, they couldn't even hold her hand or get near her because they were so injured themselves. They didn't get to see her for a month. She starts emerging from this coma, and it's very clear that, gosh, even though God spared her, their life is never going to be the same. And I got to be honest, it didn't help that my sister is a big faith person. And the whole time she is saying, God is good and we're going to trust him and our life may never be the same, but he's going to do something new through us. And I just remember having like a little bit of unrest inside of me. Like, I understand you might have to say those things just to survive right now, but are you even thinking what I'm thinking? Like, God, why would you let this happen? This was a good kid, not a bad kid. This was a good family. Like, God, this, this one doesn't seem fair. And that was just kind of festering while my big-faced sister is praising God. Well, a few months later, um, Jeff and I had... A few years prior, we'd done our biggest big faith leap of all. You know, he was always wanting to leap and follow God into something big. And he's like, let's just quit our jobs. Let's sell everything we have and let's launch this new ministry. And for the first time in my life, I had doubts. I had questions. For the first time, I thought, you know what? I'm going to jump with him. Two feet jumped into this thing. And we'd never failed at anything before. We knew that God was real. And we just believed that if we gave everything we had to God, then he had to just take care of us. And so we leaped into this thing, and a couple years in, it crumbled. I mean, for the first time, like on our face, failure. And it almost, I mean, it was very awkward, because at the same time, my sister's going through these horrible things with her family, and yet this felt like we caused it, only God could have solved it. So There were so many times God could have stepped in. And so many prayers we prayed, God, if you will just sell this, if you will just change this, if you will, he could have stepped in and fixed it. And I kind of felt like he owed it to us. I mean, we're working for you after all, God, you know, you ought to be there for us. And so for me, it was very, it almost, it's not that I didn't believe God was real. I knew he was real, but it almost hurt more because I believed he was real. God, I believe you're real. And right now it feels like you're not very loving and you're not very good. Well, a few months later, my father, we didn't know it, but when my sister was in the accident, he had had a heart attack and nobody knew it. And so he was going to have to have open heart surgery. He goes in for the surgery and the, the new young doctor from Emory accidentally clipped his lungs during that surgery. And long story short, he ended up getting opened up twice, getting a staph infection, and his body went into full sepsis. I don't know if you've seen that, but it is the saddest, worst thing I've ever had to witness. Somebody that you love is not only dying organ by organ, but they are swollen to like four times their size and they don't even look recognizable. I remember calling Jeff and saying, this is the saddest thing I've ever, it's hard enough to lose them, but to have to lose them and have this be my last memory. I just don't know if I can do this. And it didn't help that surrounding me were all these big faith people. My mother, she is the strongest person. She's like, God's going to heal him. I have no doubt. He has shown me and da 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 And she's just, and again, I thought, she has to say that. 
but she is just not in reality because every time I walk past the nurse and come in, the nurse is like, I'm so sorry. She's just like apologizing. I know you're about to lose your dad. And I'm thinking, mom, do you not see the look on the nurse's face? And you're pretending to have all of this faith. And my sister's like, we're going to praise God no matter what. (laughs) I'm thinking like, God, enough already. And I, I remember one day my sister, we were watching my dad together, and she said to me, um, what's God teaching you through all this? I said, oh, you're not going to like this one. <laughs> and I was, afraid, I was afraid to tell her because I was surrounded by all these big faith people in my family. And at this point, I think I was so tired I didn't care. I said, you know what? I know that he's real. I know that someday we're going to heaven and all of this will be okay. But right now on earth... This is honest to goodness how I feel. I am not sure God is good, and I am not sure he is loving. At least he's not good to me, and he's not loving to me. And I thought she was about to quote Bible verses at me, but she said probably the smartest thing she could ever say. She said, well, you might as well say it out loud, because if you've thought it, he already knows it. I thought, well, there it is. I've said it out loud. And so Jeff calls and he's like, baby, you got to come home. You got three babies who need you. You know, this went on for like a hundred days in ICU. And he said, at some point you got to come home and see the kids. And so the day came for me to say goodbye to my dad. And I remember being in there having that last moment with him that, you know, in your mind, you build this up, what it's going to be like. And all of a sudden, this man that I hardly know walks in And I'm kind of irritated because these are my last moments with my dad. And this guy is one of those holier-than-thou kind of guys that, you know, God isn't one syllable, it's two, the God, or four or five. And he comes in to pray over my dad. And it it was bad enough that there's a stranger in there at my intimate moment, but it was the prayer he prayed that just irritated me to no end. He was some smart Bible guy, and he said, you know, in the New Testament... 18 times it says, son of David, have mercy on me. And so we're going to pray that over Ed. And so I'm stuck on the wrong side of the bed. And he starts to pray over my dad, son of David, have mercy on Ed. Son of David, have mercy. And he does that, I'm not kidding you, 18 times. All right? By the end, I'm like, enough already. Get out of here. It's my dad, not yours. So he leaves. And I have one more stop before I can drive home. The last stop was my niece who'd had the brain injury. She was going to be in a play at church. And so I really needed to go to support her. She had no short-term memory whatsoever. So we all knew she was going to forget all of her lines and we needed to be there to smile and wave and it was all going to be okay. And so I go to see Jen's play and I'm sitting there. And of course, she forgot all of her lines except for one. There was one line. And I would have entirely missed it, but it was the 19th time I had heard it that day. She said, son of David, have mercy on me. I thought, that's weird. (laughs) I'm not sure I even knew that was in the Bible, but that's weird that I've heard that 19 times today. And so I go home. I don't think anything about it. I get home and Jeff said, baby, we need time with you. Let's go hike Stone Mountain. All right. Guys, when your wife is tired and you need time with her, she don't want to go hiking. (laughs) I'm just kidding. So we go hiking and on a picnic, on an adventure. If you've never been on a Murphy adventure, we don't stay on the trail where everybody else stays. Oh, no, because somewhere on that mountain, there is a better spot. 
and we're going to find the better spot. Well, I, I remember so clearly, like five different times, we'd get set up, put our blanket out, we're ready to have a picnic, and Jeff was like, no, 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 there's a better spot. I can see it right over there. And so we'd go to the better spot, and he'd be like, no, we're in the sun. There's a better, I mean, I'm not kidding. That happened five times. We went to the better spot, the better spot, the better spot. And we sit down for our picnic. And I have little kids, I mean, little kids, And all of a sudden, I hear this woman's voice, like in my ear almost, so clearly. And I hear the words, son of David, have mercy on me. And I'm like, what the? I don't, that was not God's voice. I don't hear it. And I look up, and like 50 yards away, there is a woman with her son. And I'm like, what are the odds? that we're in this exact spot at this exact time. And I think she just said those exact words. I take off running to her. Just like, baby, what are you? You thought I was crazy. I run over to her. And I said, what did you just say? And she said, well, I'm sitting here. I'm reading the Bible with my son. And we just read this part. It says, son of David, have mercy on me. I said, I know. I heard it 50 yards away. The way your voice carried, it was just the right angle. And I... I gave her a big hug and I just started crying because I knew it was the weirdest words ever. Nobody else would have ever known, but I knew that God knew that those were the very words that would get my attention, that I would know that I know that he just parted heaven and paused to let me know he was still there. He was still God and he loved me, and I would see his goodness not just in heaven, but also in the land of the living. And today, I tell you, some of the things got better. Some of the things never got better. But the one thing that I learned in my biggest moments of doubts and questions was that when I am doubting and teetering whether to turn my back on God or come closer, It is always safe to come closer. See, it is not your responsibility to figure it out. It is not your responsibility to get all your questions answered. If you're you're trying to believe for somebody else, it's not your responsibility to, to, to answer your friend's questions. Only God can do that. God knows exactly what it's going to take for that person. And I believe that grace doesn't just cover your sins. Grace covers your doubts and your questions. Grace says when you have questions, it is safe to come closer. I already know what they are. I made you. And perhaps I am planning to use those very doubts and those very questions to prove to you that I am real. So if you're here today and you feel like, gosh, I... I have questions like that. I have doubts like that. Or I have somebody I love that does, and I'm trying so hard to prove to them. I just want to set you at ease. It is not your job to answer all the questions. God can do that, and he will do that if we step closer. See, Jesus said to his disciples, why are you frightened? Why are you so full of doubts? He said, come closer Look at my hands. Touch. He invited them closer when they had doubts. And this morning our goal is to let you know that if you have doubts and if you have questions, it is safe 
for you to come closer. If you will just step nearer to Jesus, he will take care of answering all of those. I'm going to invite our band to come back and Jeff to come. And Jeff's going to share with you just some very practical steps that you could take in the next couple of weeks, in the next month or so, to take a step closer to Jesus. Thank you, Christy. As we close today, I'm going to go ahead and invite our host teams to come up. And I just thought about this as Christy was finishing up um, this, this conversation we've had this morning. And I was thinking that most of us, we, are, we struggle the most in the midst of our, our struggles, in the midst of our circumstances. In fact, in the midst of our struggles and circumstances, most of us are a terrible read of, of, of what God thinks about us when things are bad or when they're good, right? When things are bad, I mean really bad, think about your circumstances, your struggles. When things are bad, most of us think God's forgotten us. When things are good, somehow we think God loves us more. And I just want to say, we're, we really are. We're a terrible read. We're in the, when we are in the midst of our struggle of what God really thinks about us. Let me say this. What I pulled from Christie's talk this morning is this. In the midst of our struggle, that's exactly how the enemy, he would use that to lead us away from God, Right? Right? It's not, it's not about the circumstance. It's what our enemy wants to use it for. He intended it for bad. God intends it for good. So here's the coolest thing I learned this morning. In the midst of my biggest struggle, my biggest circumstance, my biggest doubt during those times, that is a personalized invitation from God not to feel shamed or to feel convicted or to walk away, but for us to be invited in closer. How could it be anything else? From the beginning of mankind until now, God has been leveraging life's hurts, pains, and struggles, leading us closer to himself. So I want to give you three things today that I think could help you in whatever stage you are in this tension, whether it could be I'm brand new checking out the claims of God and faith, or whether I'm a Christian, but I'm struggling with some things right now, I want to invite you to do this. Knowing that God is, is, is longing for us to come closer to Him, I want to encourage you to, to pray something. If you're struggling right now with where, where is God in the middle of my mess, I want to encourage you to do this. I want you to pray, God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. Seriously. God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. I want you to pray that. I want you to think about it today, tomorrow, the next day. And when you are in the middle of your stuff, whatever it is, allow God to use that that thing, that struggle, that issue, that tension to make himself known to you. In fact, just ask him to make himself known to you. Because our mission statement at our church is helping people find their way back to God. That's what we want to do as a church. And I believe that's what God's doing in our lives, helping us find our way back to him. I want to also encourage you to do this. We've got these books that are uh, at our connections desk. They're called, Can I Find My Way Back to God? I would have loved to have said that we wrote these. We didn't. I've got a great friend of mine who wrote uh, the, the full book of this mini book. But we have these at our connections desk. We offered those to everyone on Easter who made a decision for Christ, uh, made a decision to start following God in a relationship with Christ. But I want to encourage any of you, wherever you're at, 
If you're wrestling with some things right now, or whether you're really, you're really attempting for the first time to find your way back to God, I want you to grab one of these books at our Connections desk on the way out. Lastly, let me just encourage you. None of us can grow on our own. That is why God created the church. God didn't just create the church for we could sh- so we could show up on Sunday mornings. This is not the real place you really grow. Contrary to like myself working on a you know 20-hour message this week or for next week, contrary to what I think, you don't really grow all that much in here. You grow when you get connected with other believers, other people who are struggling like you are struggling, and you get together in community and you talk about what God's doing. You wrestle through some of your tensions. That's how you grow. On May 3rd, I want to invite you to, to show up on Sunday, check out on what we call Rally Day, all the different small groups that will launch, and I want to encourage you to look for one that fits you. There's all types of groups. We, we say from shallow end to deep end, all types of things that connect with people on different levels. And I want to encourage you to find a small group, jump in and connect with some like-minded people and and really start growing. Uh, Our host teams are going to close. Excuse me, I'm going to close. Our host teams are going to come forward. They're already here. And I just want to encourage you to do this. As we close today, let me just offer one more thing that I know there's a tension. There's this whole tension with this financial stuff, right, in the church. We're about to take an offering. First, let me say if you're a guest today, be our guest. Secondly, if you're someone who's struggling today and you you just, you need, you're at a place financially in need, I invite you just to grab whatever you need out of the offering today for yourself if that is your struggle and you are hurting financially today. Thirdly, I would say this, how many of us, including myself, some of the biggest wrestle and tension you have is in the arena of struggling through your personal finances. Can I just encourage you today? In the Old Testament, God says, test me in the arena of your finances and let me prove to you that I'm God. Can I just encourage some of you today that are on the fence with this whole doubt, trust thing, that our finances are a great way to figure out who is really Lord of your life. And so let me encourage you to tell you, as as a church, we have an opportunity every week to help people find their way back to God. And as we say around here, our goal is to help every man, woman, and child in our city to find faith. And so as a church, we get to honor God and also open our hands up for God, not only just to fund the church. We think this whole thing's about funding the church. It's really about freeing us. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that you'd help us to be free in this arena of finances. God, I pray that we would open our hearts, open our hands. God, use our own stuff to remind us that you are ultimately in control. And God, I pray that you'd use our stuff to help others find their way back to you. God, thank you for what you're doing every week and all throughout the week by showing people you are awesome, you are God, and you are loving. God, I pray that as a church, we would rise up and anticipate you every week. God, I pray for those who are making steps, taking steps today. God, powerfully prove yourself in your perfect and holy name, we pray. Amen.